I founded the BeWell Collective, a not-for-profit organization that aims to bring nutritional education and mental health support to the fashion and creative industries. I believe the topics we discuss throughout our series are relevant to whatever industry that you work in or any issues that you might be facing. Because as a collective, together, we are stronger. We all have an emotional connection with food. And for some during lockdown, this has been emphasized more than others. Disruption of our carefully planned routines, lack to social networks, and increased anxiety means food has become a comfort in time of need. Alongside the media pressures to transform yourself during lockdown, these messages can amplify the internal dialogue and increase the struggle with a poor body image and a difficult relationship with food, making it even harder. For many of us who rely on the gym or struggles with an exercise addiction, seeing the nation's newfound fitness craze under lockdown has also proved triggering. To help make sense of this all is Rene, a leading sports and eating disorder specialist dietitian with over 20 years experience working in clinical and performance nutrition. Rennie has worked as one of our experts for the Be Well Collected and has provided a huge support within our organization when it comes to disordered eating. In 2017, Rennie wrote a book titled Orthorexia, When Healthy Eating Goes Bad. It's a fantastic book for anyone wanting to understand more around the fear of clean eating. So welcome, Rennie. It's lovely to have you on the podcast today. Thank you for having me, Sarah. <laughs> These weird, challenging times that we're in, but it's all good. <laughs> I know, I know. It's so sad that I can't do this with you in person because I haven't seen you, obviously, for, for quite a few months since you've been in lockdown. How have you been coping? Yeah, I think like everybody, we, we've we all had good days and bad days, right? So mm. um, I think it's definitely come with its challenges. Um, and obviously my workload has been... Um, high shall we say um during this time and um yeah so I, I, I what I've really struggled with is getting that work-life balance because it's so easy to just work all yeah. the time when you're at home right because there's no mm -hmm. kind of boundaries there's no cut off mm -hmm. um so that's probably been my biggest challenge if I'm honest and obviously just missing people like I haven't you know, just not having a hug mm. <laughs> has yeah. proved yeah proved really really weird for me. So um, yeah, looking forward to hopefully as the lockdown starts to ease, being able to have a hug at some point. <laughs> I know that would be nice, wouldn't it? Yeah. That would be nice. So I mean, I know you've been absolutely manic with work, um, and I can understand why because I've wanted to record a podcast all about the relationship with food, and especially during lockdown. I'm sure you've seen it in clinic and I've seen it in my clinic as well of, you know, the intensity around this subject. And I just want everyone, all of my listeners to really understand about your journey and your career, because you decided to specialize in sports nutrition and eating disorders. Can you tell everyone a little bit about your journey into this and, and why did you specialize in it? Yeah, sure. I mean, I started life um, as a clinical dietitian working in the NHS. So I guess the big difference between nutritionists and dietitians is that we tend to have um, that clinical background. So 
majority of us do start life in the in the NHS doing um just a complete mix of um nutritional clients so what I mean by that is it's very very similar to a junior doctor going up the ranks in that we do a lot of rotations in different specialities and I sort of you start off doing everything so you might have like I think I remember having like 10 10 wards that I was covering from general medicine all the way up to neurology and um, cardiac and gastroenterology and then as you go through the ranks you start to specialize more and more and more and my last speciality within the NHS was pediatric eating disorders so I'd done an extra qualification to become a pediatric dietitian and then I went into sort of the mental health aspect of it um and I guess I just got to the point I've been working in the NHS for seven years and I just got to the point where I felt quite frustrated because it's very protocol driven and it's very policy driven and it's very um postcode lottery driven mm. and so you know you would you would start building a relationship with somebody when they were an inpatient and then when they were discharged to an outpatient um, service, if their postcode didn't fit and there was no funding for it, you couldn't continue your care. And I just find that incredibly difficult because I know that particularly with eating disorders, um, getting that engagement, building that relationship, creating that trust is so difficult. Mm. And then to be able just to have to let that go is it just didn't sit right with me. So um I made the decision to move away from the NHS. And at that point, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I mean, I was still, I could was doing a few private clients um, and I've always been incredibly sporty. Like through school, I was sporty. At this point, I was running a lot. Um, I belonged to a running club. I was getting some really good results. And I suppose that's kind of what took me into sports nutrition because a lot of my running buddies were, asking me questions all the time and although I had the clinical knowledge I didn't necessarily have the sports nutrition specific knowledge you know mm. like I could read about it and I could probably give them the answers but I like to really know what I'm doing and be quite credible about what I'm doing so I did a postgrad in um, applied sports nutrition and then from there just moved basically straight into sports nutrition and worked with the Great Britain uh, rhythmic gymnastics team going into London first of all and a lot of that was because I did have a clinical background as well because they wanted somebody that understood how to look at bloods how to interpret clinical data as well as sports data mm. to support these individuals through you know an incredibly challenging time and so we did that um, and then from then on I went to work in um, wheelchair basketball and wheelchair fencing as well as with a number of individual um, Olympic and Paralympic athletes so I guess I did that for about eight years and so I did two two Olympic cycles basically and during that time I just more and more and more could see that there was you know there was really difficult and dysfunctional relationships between food exercise and athletes and this constant pressure they were under and people were almost ignoring their health but but really focusing on the performance element, but at, at a cost, you know, like mm -hmm. quite, a, you know, a big cost. And I guess you get to a point where you have to start questioning what your core values are and what purpose you want from your job. Um, and I just got to the point where I came back from Rio 
And I was like, do you know what? I'm done. Mm. I'm done with athletes being treated badly. I'm done with not being listened to because I care too much. I'm done. So I walked away from the Paralympic and Olympic kind of organizations, I guess, and decided to set up my own consultancy, which is the first time I'd sort of done that properly and officially. But I was getting quite a lot of requests anyway through sport because obviously people get to know you and they know what you can do. And so I was I was always seeing some private clients anyway, and it just kind of built from there. And I suppose like you know, the, the the interesting bit about it is that, and even now I think there's a big, a big gap in the market in the sense that you have people that work in clinical eating disorders, because an eating disorder is a clinical condition. So it's, you know, it's psychological and physical, but it's a, a you know, there's a clinical manifestation of it. And then you have sports organizations and sports scientists who work very much around performance and sports. And mm. so you have this whole kind of area of low energy availability and red s or the female athlete triad as it used to be called um which overlaps with eating disorders and yet there's nobody or there was nobody working in the middle where the big overlap lies so even now my biggest challenge is getting like the clinical medics to understand the sports science and the sports science to understand the clinical medics Mm-hmm. And I guess that's where I bridge the gap. And that's why I've been doing what I do, because I've got those two specialities that overlap, which means I can provide a very holistic approach to to the athletes that come into clinic. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. I mean, you just mentioned there Red S, which for many listeners who don't know is relative energy deficiency in sports. And do you want to just speak a little bit about that? Because I think some people not might not really understand what, what that is, who's listening. Yeah, sure. So we used to have this term, um, the female athlete triad, which was very much basically um, they saw it as a female athlete problem when female athletes were training at a high level, not fueling their body properly. They would end up with um, amenorrhea, so lack of menstruation, which then had a real negative consequence on their bone health. And this was kind of very, you know, sort of seen quite quite consistently particularly in certain sports and then a lot of us started to notice that this wasn't just a pattern in females we started to see it in males as well and um, realized that it wasn't just bone health that was being affected it was also you know other um all the other biological systems within the body so we came there the ioc came up with the term um, red s the relative energy deficiency in sport which is very much when there's just not enough energy in the system to do the work that the body requires and the work the body requires being the physical training and the biological process that are needed and so when there's not enough energy to do that the body goes into preservation mode so it starts to shut down the biological processes one by one um, which can then obviously have very severe consequences to both performance and health both physical and mental um but there are two types of red s there is voluntary red s which is when somebody consciously tries to reduce their energy intake and overtrains mm-hmm. and then there is involuntary red s where basically the athlete generally just doesn't have an idea of how much fuel they need and there's no real psychological um kind of uh, aspect of that of that type of involuntary red s that as, as soon as you provide them with the information they need to 
to fuel correctly, they'll put it into practice without any concerns. Whereas with voluntary EDS, REDS, it's it's very much an eating disorder within mm. sport, basically. It's just given a different name. Yeah. Do you know what? And that's just so interesting because as you're explaining this, I'm thinking of so many different types of, of, of people within my world, which is the fashion industry, um, and many different men and women that I see coming into to my clinic as well. And I don't think it's that probably that different from the sports side that you, that you work with and the extremes that you can see of, of dieting. But I also feel that we live in a really obesogenic environment. And it was quite funny when you said about working with the Olympic um, Games because McDonald's has been the sponsor of them for about 40 years. I think they've just stopped sponsoring now. But I feel that there's a, such a conflict of you're meant to be working with the athletes and fueling your bodies well. Um, yet there are the biggest sponsor was McDonald's. And I feel that this really encourages a yo-yo dieting aspect. So maybe they don't know how to fuel themselves properly or they are, but they're not correctly fueling with the right foods and they're not getting the results, you know, and there's a lot of emphasis on weight and health and how do you, how important is it to fuel yourself correctly and with the right foods after you're doing, you know, working with high importance athletes or people that look to yo-yo dieting and look to calorie restriction could you just explain you know how unbeneficial it is to be yo-yo dieting and what this can do to us in the long term yeah sure i mean i mean i think the first thing to say though is majority of olympic athletes will have um a sports dietitian or a sports nutritionist attached to their sport so they will very much have access to understand how to feel properly Mm. when it comes to kind of sponsorships at the end of the day it's like all sponsorships right it's it unfortunately it does personally I would not attach a sponsorship to my podcast or to my brand that I didn't align with mm. but I can't speak for every organization so mm. um you know the IOC have that really had that relationship with McDonald's and that was their decision and something that we have no influence over but it doesn't you're quite right it doesn't actually encourage good practice mm. when you're in a, an olympic environment particularly um it's the same regards, as saying with someone that's a dentist but they're they advertise with coca-cola exactly because i'm not sure dentists would want everybody to drink coca-cola so you know yeah. it's the same kind of relationship that you see yeah exactly um and and so but when it comes to yo-yo dieting i mean obviously it's an interesting term that because I haven't heard that term yo-yo dieting for quite a long time in the sense mm. that I think um, it was very much in the heyday of diet culture. It was very much the big, you know, the the kind of the, the big word that was used. And I suppose, I suppose nowadays, maybe we use diet culture more, diet mentality more in, in the spec that, you know, people always feel this need to be achieving something, whatever that achievement is. And um, as you said right at the beginning of this podcast, food is emotional. Yeah. Food is emotional. And and that's not that's not a negative. I think it's really important to understand that if we go back to early years, infant years, baby years, like let let's let's look at hunger, for example. You know, hunger is a physiological feeling. It's a physiological occurrence that is uncomfortable for us. Mm -hmm. And when a baby is hungry, he or she cries. And when he or she cries because she's hungry, 
they don't really know what's going on, but they just know that they need to cry because they're not they're not happy, right? They're feeling something uncomfortable. And a mother or a father would pick them up and and feed them in whatever way they're going to feed them. And then the that also kind of the way in that chat's done, like the way they're cradled, the way they're fed, the the the, the the eye-to-eye contact, all that creates comfort and support. So the baby soon learns about support and comfort, right? So very, very early on, we develop these relationships with emotions. So when we want comfort, we may look to food, but that doesn't always mean that that relationship has to be bad. Like, again, you know, uh, we live in a society where we, we make these big, sweeping statements and we have these real kind of um associations with Mm. what comfort eating means but actually that's because i think the term comfort eating stress eating emotional eating is is interchanged and Mm. people get really confused about what that is because what they're basically talking about is probably binge eating and and that is an actual eating disorder but there are always going to be times when we want to eat for comfort and that doesn't necessarily mean that's wrong and i think it's really important to understand that because you know i know i have days where if i've had a really bad day and i'm exhausted and i'm tired you know my go to comfort food is baked beans on toast with cheese right mm-hmm. that's my thing because mm-hmm. it reminds me of a time when um i'd come back in from brownie camp we'd had supper and the supper was cheese on toast with uh, beans on toast with cheese and there were lots of happy faces a lot of chattering I just remember associating it with a really happy time for me Mm -hmm. so comfort food is also I think it's important to understand that concept that comfort food doesn't have to be a negative as such I think where the yo-yo dieting comes in is that if you are an individual that is maybe not as engaged with your emotions and you're in this pursuit for an aesthetic. I mean, people tend to go on a diet for aesthetic reasons, right? They they want to usually change how they look. Um, Absolutely. It's body image. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes people need to, but sometimes people don't need to, you know, it's, it's, it, and that depends. Like there are going to be cases where if somebody is, you know, very overweight in the obese range where their weight is affecting their health. And I mean, I really do mean their weight is affecting their health, as in they've been told it's medically affecting their health, then losing weight is going to be important. But then there are often cases where people are wanting to go on a diet to change their appearance because they don't feel good about their body image. Mm. And I guess you have to start asking yourself, what is it about pursuing that body image that you can't get from the rest of your life? Yeah. Right. It's it's a very it's a very complex thing. So generally speaking, if it's somebody who is probably got quite low self-esteem and is is searching for happiness in inverted commas by a body image, or is searching for acceptance in inverted commas from a body image, then obviously that's because they have they've got a difficult relationship with self, right? Mm-hmm. Which is very different. So the problem then is that they they may go out hard and over-restrict significantly to try and achieve the aesthetics they're looking for. And this then sets the body up to fail. So in the same way as we talked about Red S earlier, mm-hmm. where 
the body identifies that there's not enough energy going into the system and it starts to shut down biological processes. The same thing will happen even in somebody who is not um, an athlete, but is maybe doing a lot of exercise and trying to restrict their intake at the same time. Mm-hmm. And so this can then, oh, this causes like a physiological preservation. So what happens is actually the weight may fall off initially quite quickly, but then it doesn't anymore because the body's preserving energy. And actually, potentially, sometimes you can hold on to more body fat at this stage because the body's, like I said, trying to preserve energy. The individual becomes more and more frustrated, tries to cut back even further, and the whole cycle gets worse and worse to the point where then it can also start to affect their mental health and um, uh, their, you, you know, as well as well as their physical health. So there's, you know, there's the, the, the problem with yo-yo dieting is that you 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 keep your body in a state of confusion the whole time. It never gets to a point where it's consistent and regulated and understands that the threat of starvation has disappeared. So you go through these phases of restricting, and then when you've had enough and food becomes available, you you end up eating to excess because the body's like, well, I don't know when you're going to feed me again, and I mm-hmm. need to keep, you know, I need to get as many calories as I can. You know, so you may then go through a phase of being more relaxed, but actually over-consuming and the weight returns, and then you feel that then there's all the kind of, association with with that with regards to how you perceive yourself and then the whole cycle starts again but you never get to the point of where you were trying to get to in the first place and i guess i use the term yo-yo dieting because i always say there's a new fad coming out which somebody wants to try or think there's a quick fix and everything that you just said you end up being in a cycle and even the word diet i'm quite against because i think it should be a lifestyle change that's working for you long term and that's not restrictive but here I just and I and I'm sure you feel the same I know that you've spoken about it quite a lot on your social platform which is a fantastic platform to follow thank you social media I'd love to know what your thoughts are on regarding social media especially in lockdown and with all these fads that you see coming through um, and how best to approach that Oh wow, big question. Um, how do I feel about social media? I mean, mm-hmm. I think I'm. It's very obvious that from those of you that follow me that I have a very love hate relationship with social media. Um, I would agree that I have exactly the same. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> my social media is is very much an educational platform. Like, there's very little information about me on there. Like, I don't personally. I'm quite a private person, and I don't think it's. I personally don't even post what I eat or what training I do particularly because I just don't think it's relevant for anybody to know Mm. like it's my life it's my choice and I'm an individual in my own right so what I do is right for me but that doesn't mean it's going to be right for anybody else so I have issues with that as well on social media I have real issues with people sharing what they're eating Mm -hmm. um, posting what they're doing for their workouts because does anybody really care? Do mm. you know? Do you know? What, I know that sounds really and harsh. And also individual. What might work for one person will not work for somebody else. Exactly, and I think that's what I always try and explain to the people I work with is that because they also because you're right, it completely feeds into their mentality that you know they already feel they're not doing enough because that's fundamentally one of the biggest 
driving forces for the, the eating disorder behaviors to continue and the exercise addiction behaviors to condition, continue is you don't feel like you're enough. So you never feel like you're doing enough and mm-hmm. you constantly crack that whip and you've got that inner critic that is basically just chattering negative narrative in your ear the whole time. You're not good enough. You're rubbish. You're inadequate. You're, you know, you're boring. All those things that people hear again and again and again. And, you know, that that's sort of like separate work that needs to be done. But when you've got that going on all the time within you and then you could start scrolling through social media and you see that, oh, such and such has done this many miles and such and such has done three hit sessions today and and they're eating, all they're eating is, you know, a plate of vegetables. It starts to, it plays on that those those individuals that are really struggling. I mean, the social media influencer scene, particularly around food and exercise, was was the was the reason why orthorexia was written as a book, because it all stemmed from you know, a rather uncomfortable panel session, Cheltenham Literature Festival, where I was on pan- on stage with Madeline Shaw and B. Wilson. Mm. And um, yes, you know, for those of you who 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 don't uh, don't know the story, I'm sure if you look up B. Wilson's um, Guardian columns, you'll get a full understanding of of what happened during that that um, that session. But I think like. I I have issues with social media because, like I said, it validates behaviours that are not helpful. And I suppose where I find it also difficult, and I've said this quite recently, is that I get quite irritated. I'm sure you do too, Sarah. Mm. I'm noticing that my content is being used by influencers because they're, yeah. they're trying to promote like you know in their mind they're trying to do something good they're trying to promote um a better balance or whatever it might be but the problem is the work that i do is so incredibly complex mm-hmm. that if you don't understand it just by putting a post out doesn't mean that you are actually getting the right message out and that really worries me is the content that goes out by influencers who are not qualified or credible to give that type of information out um, because it's dangerous. If it's in the, if it's given in the wrong context, it can still be really dangerous. So, I think I we you know I would never say that social media causes eating issues as such, but it definitely contributes towards them and maintains them without a doubt. Mm. And and when it comes to body image, I guess it's it's such a complex subject. Like body image is is so complex in the sense in the sense that it's it's not just about the image we see in front of us like that's if you know when you look at the definition of what body image is that's what it is it's it's the reflection of yourself in the mirror or in the screen in front of you or whatever it is you can see but it doesn't tell you anything about that person right it it doesn't yeah. it doesn't it's it's not the depth of that individual and yet we also all strive for these ideal ideal images that we we see day after day after day and i guess one of the things that frustrates me about that and i and i do use this in my clinic is that i do work with some of these high profile influencers and i know that they are not healthy mm-hmm. i know they don't have periods mm-hmm. you know and and while i would never give away kind of 
obviously confidential information about the individual, I would say that is that, you know, what you see is not always what is real, right? So that image that you're trying to achieve is probably not healthy, to be fair, in terms of, of, of you know, of, of what it means to be a healthy, healthy individual. Mm. I mean, it comes down to weight and worth as well and, and body image and how, how can we not compare ourselves to each other? What do you say to your, your, your patients in clinic when a big driving force is, is comparison? And I think we are all subject to this. Um, of comparing ourselves to one another, um, and and how would you work with with a patient on that to to reduce the comparison? So I'm sure you've heard of the phrase that comparison is the thief of joy. Mm-hmm. So I tend to work on that principle that you know fundamentally the only person you can ever really compare yourself to is you, because there's no one else like you out there. So you know, in terms of genetically ethnically we're all different mm. right so i know i spent my teenage years comparing myself to my my caucasian friends right <laughs> completely pointless because i'm of indian origin and i'm never going to look or have the physique of someone who is who's caucasian right mm. i'm I've, I've got a very different um build because i'm very petite in that indian style that they tend to be um but I did beat myself up for years because I just didn't have long legs and I wasn't what, you know, I wasn't tall and I didn't have blonde hair and all those things that we do, right? We we just mm. but but then I realized that yeah, but I'm never gonna have that because genetically I'm not built like that. And <laughs> so why am I gonna waste the rest of my life pursuing something that's never gonna happen? Mm. And I think that's something that a lot of people have to understand is that when you try and deny reality which is what a lot of people do when they're trying to when they're trying to achieve a, a body image that probably isn't right for them and their genetics and their body type when you when you're in pursuit of that if you try and um if you try and deny a reality all you're doing is increasing your suffering right yeah so like for me the work i do is very much about getting people to empowering people to understand that they have the power over their thoughts over their behaviors it's about getting them to be curious with their emotions so often when we are using body image food exercise it's 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 a coping mechanism it's pro- providing a purpose so that we don't have to deal with difficult or uncomfortable emotions but if we actually become curious with our emotions then we're more likely to work through them so Mm. if I give you an example I was working with somebody this morning and you know she was she was really really emotional she had a, a tough session for her but we were talking about her experience of of eating a cake that her husband had bought her because he knows it's her favorite and she really enjoyed it. But then she beat herself up about it for the rest of the day, didn't eat lunch, you know, sort of set herself up to kind of basically fail in, in a way because she just had so much guilt about eating something and enjoying it as mm. well. And we saw, I said to her, okay, well, let's, let's look at that. And I said, the first thing is, the first thing you've done is you've, you've become your emotion. You've become the guilt Mm-hmm. You've said, I feel guilty. So you've become that guilt. And 
that means that you're going to react in a certain way. When we become our emotion, we then react emotionally in that way, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas if you separate yourself and you start to go, I'm noticing that I feel guilty. You give yourself space to then start being more curious about that emotion because our emotions are not fact. They're important. Like they tell us that something's going on for us. They're a barometer that something's happening. Something's not right, but I don't know what that is as such. So if you give yourself the space to then start exploring that, then you can, you know, you can start to work on that. So for me, when someone says they feel guilty, it's quite a strong word because, you know, guilt is around breaking contracts or committing crimes or, or, you know, there's something quite big or letting someone down if you feel guilty about not being turning up for something or like, like we said, like breaking a contract. So then you have to kind of take a step back and go, okay, so when did I make the contract with myself that I would only eat in a certain way? And then you explore that even further. Do you see? So, so I think like the thing that to remember is that when you get stuck in a difficult relationship with food, exercise, body image, all it's really doing is acting as a, a as a as a, a wall, I guess, between you and your emotions. Because for some reason, you're a bit too scared to go into them and explore what they really mean. But when we start exploring our emotions, making curious about them and understanding what they are and what they represent, that's how we can move forward and have a much better relationship with self. So, you know, like I think people often think when you're working with people with eating disorders, it's all about giving them a a nutrition plan and sending them on their way. Mm. But it really isn't. It's about helping them to understand their relationship with self but also how that relationship with self plays out through their food and exercise and then helping them to work through adopting a better relationship with self, which will then help them have a better relationship with food and exercise. I think you've explained that beautifully. And I also think you've just answered quite a few of my questions that I was (laughs) going to ask you as well, which is just fantastic because I think this is the biggest thing. You know, when I finished my nutrition degree, I was like, okay, so I understand the biochemistry of food and X, Y, and Z. But when you start working with people or I set up, obviously, the not-for-profit Be Well Collective, and I was always around way before I started nutrition with many young men and women who all had a very difficult relationship with food. And the psychology behind it was the most important thing. And I think during lockdown, the reason why I've had such an influx of DMs or people asking me about relationships of food is because psychology plays a fundamental part. And in lockdown, it's been very intense, I would say, Mm, in mm. that sense. And I think food's been a huge comfort for many people. Um, And so a lot of people are, again, really confused why they're having all of these thoughts and this much more intense relationship with food. They're seeing they're constantly in the fridge. Maybe it's boredom. Maybe it's there's an underlining reason of of why but I really love for you to help explain why it's so much more important for people to understand that there's a deeper meaning behind the emotional connection for food it's not always just boredom there is also as you said these uncomfortable feelings um that you need to be aware of yeah I mean so I guess like I suppose one thing I've been I've done when I've done reading um around the subject and around the psychology of food particularly and and kind of studied around it is that we 
we are a society that tends to um, always work towards positive emotions, right? So mm. we, we work towards like happiness and success and achievements and joy, like all of those are accepted and they're great. And that's what we should all be doing. We should all be like, we should all be amazing mm. all the time, right? And 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 what we, we don't do is often we don't help particularly... I mean, a lot of this develops as we go, as we are going through our development stages, so through childhood and teenagehood and then adulthood, is we don't learn necessarily how to accept difficult emotions. So we're almost taught to deny difficult emotions. So, yeah. you know, failure is seen as, as a negative and, and being like being rejected is seen as a negative and having hurt and pain and loss, they're really hard, like they're really hard, uncomfortable conditions and emotions to go through and you know a lot of the people I work with have often had some sort of huge trauma or loss or pain that they have they are avoiding because they just don't want to experience it because it's too big for them it's too uncomfortable and it's become too frightening because the further and further away they've got from dealing with it the bigger and bigger and bigger a problem it's become Mm -hmm. right so it's like it's like when you're a child and you're under the bed covers and you're scared of the dark and the, mm-hmm. the the longer you stay there, the bigger the monster is that you're scared of. You know, it's it's mm-hmm. that kind of thing. And I suppose like there's a lot of anxiety there, and and we get again we know that eating disorders uh, do tend to um, help to um, numb anxiety, particularly. So what I mean by that is that there's very good evidence that suggests that you know, particularly things like anorexia nervosa, the whole point of the nervosa is because it was an anxiety, like there's a big anxiety attached to it. And, and so, and the same with orthorexia nervosa, there's, you know, the, the, the kind of the anxiety with it. And what we know is that when you restrict your intake, when you, um, you know, when you, when you exercise, you temporarily numb that anxiety. And so then that also becomes a learnt behavior, right? So it's, so I think what I'm trying to say is that, the disordered eating, eating they're very complex they're not just about um food they're about this this underlying uh, kind of coping problems and yeah and issues that need to be dealt with and i think during lockdown particularly what has happened is we were thrown into lockdown literally overnight Mm. right there was there was a sense that something was going to happen but we were literally thrown into lockdown overnight and that created a huge amount of anxiety for a lot of us because there was suddenly big question marks over everything like what's going to happen to work and what's going to happen in the future and am I going to see my loved ones again and when will I see my friends and what's going to happen to the gym and you know all those different questions that were being that were being um, asked and uncertainty is really uncomfortable for most people but if you're a highly anxious person it's even more uncomfortable. And again, the people that we work with have a huge amount of uncertainty. They want certainty that if they eat X, Y is going to happen, mm-hmm. right? But you can't always give them that certainty because there isn't that certainty. You know, nutrition is a science, but it's not an absolute science. And so you can't always give them, it's not like maths. So yes. that's the bit that's really difficult. And so, but the problem is because they can't cope with the, I don't know, they end up believing a definitive negative because it's much easier 
to have a definite to, to to believe a definitive negative than sit with the I don't know. So, for example, what I mean by that is, you know, if you have somebody who's fearful of eating cheese, for mm-hmm. example, they won't eat cheese because they, in their head, they've told themselves if they eat cheese, it's, they're going to put weight on, even though you can give them all the combinations of why it wouldn't happen. But in their mind, they just don't know. And so it's much easier for them to go, no, but if I eat cheese, I'll get fat. That's mm. just a that's just a, a an immediate response they have because that's much easier to accept. It's not true, and it's an assumption they've made, and that assumption they've made fact, but it's easier for them to understand. And I think that's I think it's really important to to really think about your thoughts in that way because how many times have has that happened to you? where you've made an assumption fact, maybe not even about food, but about what somebody said or what somebody thinks, or, you know, like I've got a lot of young, young, young um, people I work with who make an assumption that actually, if they're a certain body fat percentage, they're going to run faster. Mm -hmm. And yet there's never actually any proof of that, you know? So I think like, that's like, that's quite an important thing. And then obviously at the same time with this lockdown, we had this huge amount of threat thrown at us. You know, if you leave the house, this this <laughs> this virus that's unseen could kill you, is mm. what we were told. Mm. Plus, we were put into a situation which we had no influence over at all. So for those people who like routine, who who have a have quite a difficult relationship with food and exercise, and suddenly all their coping mechanisms were taken away from them, plus the element of threat was heightened you can understand why they felt the need to become more extreme in their behaviors with regards to food and exercise because it was their way of coping with something they didn't want to deal with and what about the everyday person that just now doesn't have, maybe not have an eating disorder and i say the everyday person but somebody that doesn't have a eating disorder has never really thought about food in this way but all of a sudden is feeling that all they want to do is go to the fridge or they don't have the energy to cook even though they're in all day and they want to just order a KFC like mm-hmm. two to three times a day because they just feel low. What's your advice to to the people to these kind of people that are, are listening and just thinking, I'm just really struggling. I don't feel like I have an eating disorder. Um, but for me, food has become such an important part of my life in lockdown. What would you say to to, to these kind of people that are listening? I'd say, like, again, it comes back down to what does that really mean? Like, what I mean by that is, is like, what is it that you're trying to achieve? Mm. Yeah. So if you are, maybe it is boredom because you are not, you've been furloughed and you can't, you've got no work, perhaps, and and you need something to fill the gap because normally your mind is occupied by by work. Um Maybe it is that you're feeling a massive amount of grief and loss, which I wouldn't be surprised about at the moment because mm. we've lost a life that we were used to and we have no idea when we're going to get that back, right? And and that that is, I feel that. I feel a huge amount of loss for my previous life, you know, where I jumped on a plane whenever I wanted to, mm. to, to go to the mountains and, and, and have some fun and, and whatever. I I feel a huge amount of loss around that. And loss around the fact that I can't go to the gym and loss around the fact that I can't go and stay at my friend's house. You know, all the things that I would normally do to 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 restore me and re-energize me, I can't do right now. And so 
there's definitely a big sense of loss. But if you haven't understood what you're experiencing, you may then be turning towards food as a way of distracting yourself from that. So, you know, if you find yourself wanting um, KFC, maybe maybe that is your comfort food. It's your way of kind of trying to feel a bit better because you know that temporarily it will make you feel better, mm-hmm. right? In in for a while, and again, there's nothing wrong with that. But if that then becomes a new behavior that can then potentially be more negative towards your health in the longer term, then that is a problem. So it's fine having the odd takeaway, but if you're doing it day in day out because it's become a convenience it's become um something that you use as a way of maybe treating yourself or comforting yourself you you probably need to go a bit deeper and ask yourself what is it that you're trying to comfort yourself from and you've identified you need comfort but like what what does what is what else could you do in that moment to to get comfort you know what does that mean like i you know i during the lockdown because i live on my own i i have have days where I felt incredibly lonely mm. and when I've explored what that has meant for me all it's saying to me is that I really value companionship mm. yeah and mm. so because I've worked it out because I've understood it I haven't then got stuck in this I'm so lonely I'm all on my own like I haven't got stuck in that because mm. I've understood that I just value companionship and right now it's quite a difficult time to to have companionship because we are in lockdown so I think like what I would say is that it's really important to try and understand and be curious about what is going on for you. Mm-hmm. You know, look at your life in terms of how different is your life right now to a few months ago when maybe you did feel like everything was okay. Mm. And and then work through, well actually if I'm not working, I can't see my family, I can't see my friends, I can't, you know, I maybe I'm not doing as much exercise because I can't be bothered because I usually go to the gym, but you know, a run just doesn't work for me, whatever it might be. But if you, if you work through it and actually go through that, you'll find other solutions, right? It's okay. Maybe running's not for you, but why not just go for a walk for an hour a day? Or, you know, maybe you could find some yoga or something else that, that can still help you, but you know, it might not be the same as what it was. And I think there also needs to be a level of acceptance, which is, again, going back to that, when we deny reality, we increase our suffering. Mm -hmm. There needs to be an element of acceptance and compassion towards ourselves, too. That's the big thing, is that people are not compassionate towards themselves. They beat themselves up all the time. And like, if that's one thing I could teach people, and teach teenagers particularly, is you just show some compassion towards yourself like listen to the conversations you're having in your head would you talk to anybody you care about the way you talk to yourself and if you wouldn't then don't do it mm. no i i say that to my clients as well <laughs> because i think self sabotage is one of the biggest things that i see and i mean going to the other spectrum of it was because i had quite a few um, which I'm going to ask you at the end, but questions sent to me about, you know, I can't stop. And KFC came up quite a lot, KFC. And I guess it's <laughs> a lot of people's comfort food right now. And I even saw a friend this weekend who just said, like, you know, just ordered my surgeon on the weekend and I feel really low and I don't know why I'm feeling this way. And I said the same thing. It's 
you know, are you hungry? Like say to yourself right now, like, what do you need at the moment? And how, and what am I feeling? And it's sometimes having those, those conversations with yourself to really discover what you need at that time. But your immediate, your immediate go-to would be a KFC as yours would be beans on toast with cheese. Mm-hmm, yeah. which I think it's a fantastic go-to. That reminds me of my childhood, but <laughs> on a baked potato. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, not being on that end of the spectrum, but what are the signs of an unhealthy relationship to food? Because some people might be thinking, well, do I have an unhealthy relationship to food? Is this normal? You know, what would you say are the signs that you need to be aware of within yourself or maybe even loved ones um, that are developing an unhealthy relationship with food? I think the key thing is, is when there's a level of anxiety, right? Mm-hmm. So um, I think when it becomes impossible to join in socially um, because somebody feels like they they're not eating to the rules they've created or they feel like it's not quite the food that they would want to eat uh, or they sh- you know they should eat type thing then that's when I think really you should start to get concerned so when it starts to affect your everyday life like we all have days where we don't feel like eating. I don't know, you know, chicken and quinoa. We want, we do want a KFC. Like we all have days like that, right? And that's absolutely fine. But if your relationship, either way, becomes that all you'll eat is chicken and quinoa because that's what you've told yourself is healthy, and you can't deviate from that, or the opposite extreme, all you eat is takeaways because, um, you know, maybe like you said, it's a comfort, it becomes an alert habit that makes you feel better momentarily, Um, then I think you need to start to definitely think about the relationship you have with food. Because, you know, like, generally speaking, when we talk about healthy eating, we talk about unrestrained eating. So we talk about, you know, the fact that, yeah, most of the time, we probably do follow the kind of general guidelines of eating more fruit and veg and and eating, you know, your whole grains and and your protein and all that kind of stuff and doing regular exercise. But whenever we take anything to an extreme, that's probably the best way of putting it. Whenever we take it to an extreme and then we can't deviate from that extreme, that's when it becomes a problem. So, you know, if you can't eat without training, if you feel you have to earn your calories, for example, that would probably be something to be worried about. If you will train even when you're injured or ill or you're tired, that would be something to be worried about, right? So Mm -hmm. like those, wherever it creates an anxiety, when you can't be restful around food and exercise, I would say that's when it becomes a problem. Yeah, and if you're worried about skipping a day off with exercising or taking a weekend off, I guess that's when you start to really notice Yeah, this is actually taking over a massive part of your life and controlling your life, as you said. Yeah. Um, what I see a lot in athletes is that they're fine while they can train, but as soon as they get injured, then the wheels come off. Well, do you know what I did a, on um, episode one, not episode one, sorry, season one of Live Well, Be Well, I spoke to Victoria Pendleton mm. and she actually openly discussed for the first time her eating disorder regarding um, when she left, she hung up her shoes, her cycling shoes, and that's when it really impacted her. Mm. Um, and she always feels that she'll never have this strong body that she had again, but she, she, she went the opposite and she got anorexia 
Nervosa, as you spoke about, she got to a point where she had one apple a day and she then lost all of her training ability. Mm. Um, and it was this feeling of loss from something that she adored for so long, but then felt that she got older and she couldn't compete to the standards she was competing. Um, and that's when her eating disorder um, and crept in. And so she spoke very openly about that. Um, and I guess it is, as she said, you know, it took her a long time to really get to that uncomfortable position of realizing what she was trying to, what she, what she was really feeling, and what the eating disorder was covering up under underneath, underneath is what she spoke to me about. Um, yeah. And she also suffered a lot with depression alongside it. And do you see that in a lot of eating disorders? Do you see many other mental health conditions come alongside people with an eating disorder? Yeah, definitely. But it's all related, right? In mm. the sense, it's, again, this is what I mean when I was talking about it earlier, that people put conditions into boxes. So, yeah. you know, like the sports world put Red S into a box and, and the clinical it's world put e- it's, it's all combined in yeah. the sense that, you know, if you've got low energy availability, whether that's consciously or unconsciously, you are going to affect your hormone levels, right? So you're yes. going to, you know, in women and in men, we will women will see a reduction in estrogen and men will see a reduction in testosterone. And both testosterone and estrogen are neurotransmitters. So they, they act as important receptors of serotonin in the brain. Mm-hmm. And so if you have low levels of estrogen or testosterone, then you can't absorb as much serotonin, which means it's going to affect your mood, right? Yeah. It's going to have a negative impact on your mood. So that's one element of it. But also, although you may have started out this journey to some degree, maybe it was kind of it was meant to be like you know, kind of um, started the journey out as kind of improving yourself or you know whatever self improvement. Mm-hmm. Fundamentally, you've kind of got yourself stuck in a cycle of unworthiness because whatever you do is never enough and so you're just stuck you're just kind of like you know it doesn't matter how how light I get or or how many you know how many food groups I've removed from my diet I still don't feel better I still Mm. don't feel okay I still because you're not trying to you're trying to achieve a place a a destination which doesn't exist because Mm. actually what you're trying to what you really need is to get to a place where you accept all angles of yourself yeah you you accept all aspects of who you are even the emotions you're not massively keen on right Mm -hmm. like we all have them we all have those those parts of us that we're like oh they make you feel really uncomfortable (laughs) that you you know that about yourself Mm. but actually if you're open about it and honest and accept it you're like yeah actually that 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 was me and I don't really like that about me now either I can do something about that or I accept it you know like I know we're not talking about this specifically, but if you think about over the last couple of weeks, everything that's been going on with the Black Lives Matters, I think that's been a big part of that, that some people have woken up going, actually, I'm quite uncomfortable about my relationship with this, but I've never really looked at it because I've never needed to until now. Mm. And, And so, again, that might be an element of yourself that you're not comfortable with and you've just shut down, but actually exploring that and going, Maybe I just don't know enough and I need to learn more so that I can be more comfortable in that environment. Do you see what I mean? So we all have elements of ourselves that we don't always are not comfortable with. And I think, you know, 
that when you're in that cycle of unworthiness and you're constantly beating yourself up, you sort of feel trapped. And that in itself will then add to your the pressure that you feel and the, the negativity that you feel towards yourself, which will will supplement your mood from being low. And I completely agree on that, by the way. I think that is such a fantastic point to put in. It's always not just with food. Following this, I was sent so many questions then people <laughs> knew I was speaking to you. Um, and I just want to run through a couple of them before sure. um, we wrap up the podcast. So I can't stop eating sugar when I'm really full and hungry. It's probably about 10 a day I receive of these yeah. on social media. And it was the top question that I got asked. So why, what would you, advice would you give to somebody um, who can't stop eating sugar, but they are full and, um, but they're not hungry? I think, again, I would question like, what does the rest of your diet look like, right? So if we think like the body, the body's preferred currency of energy is sugar, it's glucose, it's, it's carbohydrate, it's easy, mm -hmm. it's easy to break down and, and the body likes to use it and the brain uses it as well. So, you know, we know that our body runs on glucose, which is really important to understand. So often when people crave sugar, when they're constantly craving sugar, it would suggest to me one of two things, either they're not eating enough or like they're, they've got big gaps in their diet in terms of the um, time between fe feeding. So that's why their their body's blood sugars have dropped. And so that's why they're craving sugar. Or their diet is displaced in that. What I'm seeing more and more and more, Sarah, is people who are predominantly plant-based. They're displacing their whole grain carbohydrates with vegetables. Mm -hmm. And so the diet is very, very voluminous. So you feel incredibly full. But actually, you're not getting the energy that your body actually needs and you're not getting the, the glucose that your body needs. And so that's another reason why people will then end up craving sugar. Yeah. So that would be like a, a, the, the, the usual kind of um, cause for why the body is actually craving sugar. It will be related to blood sugars or overall energy intake. Well, that leads me into a really good question, which I felt was vital to put in. Um, I worry carbs will make me <laughs> fat. So I'd love to hear. <laughs> I'd love to hear your take on this. Oh, God. I, I know this is a really hard one. I feel like I need to do a whole <laughs> podcast on it. but And I'm asking you as a just about to wrap up, but I just had to put it in. No, absolutely. <laughs> I just, I would love to get hold of the person that first made this this a fact I know yeah <laughs> because it would it, I would just love to give them a piece of my mind mm. um carbs do not make you fat please 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 understand that um I think that the difficulty is obviously is that there are lots of different types of carbs as we've just discussed you know mm -hmm. you've got your complex carbs and you have your kind of your fruit you have your, your carbs from fruit and then you have your your carbs from added sugar so you know your your honey and your glucose and your um date syrups and your molasses and and your sugar what you know whatever all those mm -hmm. things and and the, 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 i suppose where it came from possibly was that it's very easy to over consume the wrong types of carbs mm -hmm. right so again like because if we look at things like fizzy drinks this is one of the big reasons why fizzy drinks became such a problem because it's just pure sugar mm. and you could you could you know most people every time they had a drink if they had a fizzy drink they could easily consume an additional thousand calories a day without even realizing, mm -hmm. right? And so I guess what 
what the whole the where it got lost in translation was that people started to assume that well all carbs must be bad bad because you know sugar's bad and, and carbohydrates bad and, and and it's like no it's and actually even sugar's not bad like nothing's bad for you mm. it's all about the the balance and the composition of your diet and everybody's composition is going to be different depending on their lifestyle on their energy expenditure on their physical activity levels on their genetics like that's the thing there's no one size fits all but i guess the analogy i always use which hopefully will help people to understand this better is that if you um look at a, a normal size bag of jelly babies for example like one of those kind of the ones you get when you're going on a car trip you mm-hmm. know one of those so there there's about 155 grams of carbs in a whole packet of those and actually on a 2 hour car trip probably quite easy to consume that without really thinking about it because mm-hmm. it's just they don't fill you up right they're just energy at the end of the day they might feel a bit sick but they're just they're just easy to consume. Mm-hmm. So before you know it, you have consumed 155 grams of carbs. That's where the carb thing came into. Now, if we look at that in terms of potatoes, that's the equivalent of three medium-sized baked potatoes. So nobody's going to sit there and eat three medium-sized baked potatoes because that's quite a lot to eat and it's quite uncomfortable to eat that much in, in the same amount of time. So this is where the the problem comes is that it's, yes, if you can overconsume too much of anything, whether that's protein, carbs, fat, sugar, more than your body requires, then you, you know, you will have a tendency to store that as excess. But if you don't consume more than your body requires, then you won't basically. Mm -hmm. So it's more about looking, it's not like saying that sugar is bad for you and you should never eat sugar. It's just looking at the the composition of your diet and understanding that yeah it's very easy to overconsume certain foods and that's why it could be problematic and again there's a big could in there because mm-hmm. it's not going to be for everybody no and that you've explained it beautifully <laughs> um, Thank you. i feel like i need to do a whole podcast on this actually um because uh, yeah one question isn't enough but no i think that's fantastic because also when you look at sugar you know you don't always want to consume in an isolated form you have fructose in an apple but then you have the fiber around the outside which helps slow down that release so i think people also look at isolating macronutrients Mm. where actually we shouldn't be we should be consuming them all together which again has a really important biochemistry process behind that whereas just having your jelly babies as you said which are great for marathon training yeah they are (laughs) (laughs) when you're thinking jelly babies i was like I use them on my long runs. Um, But yeah, no, I think that was really beautifully put. But to round off, because I know that you work with the BWAG Collective Mm -hmm. um, and you gave a fantastic workshop, actually. And everyone that attended it found it so unbelievably helpful. You really broke down the complexity um, around the relationship with food, as you have done in this podcast as well. But what does Be Well mean to you? Gosh, be well, as in as in to be well, or as in your as in be well, the the organisation. Um, I kind of want to say both, but I <laughs> I always ask, what does be well, um, essentially as being well mean to you? Gosh, for me, being well just means having a really good. Sounds really cliched, but just having a really good balanced approach to life, right? Mm. So. Um, and I don't always get it right. For me, I know that my work balance 
tends to overshadow my life balance, um, which means I don't always leave space. I definitely don't leave enough, at the moment, I definitely don't leave enough space for myself. So that's something I know I need to work on to be well, is, is to have some some more time for myself to restore and energize and, and just you know, like when I talk about space, I'm not necessarily talking about space to do anything. I'm actually just talking about space to, you know, actually sit with my thoughts and work out what is going on for me and what do I need to address and what do I need to explore? Because I think we are such complex creatures and it's so easy, isn't it, just to get stuck into the day in, day out, day in, day out, and not really reflect on yourself and go, actually, what do I need right now? Oh, is that why I'm, um, you know, so tired? Or is that why I'm needing to have my, you know, cup of tea with my two biscuits every afternoon? Or you know what I mean? Like, it's, it's kind of, I just, I think, and that's something I've tried to do more so in the last few weeks of lockdown, because I noticed that I was just basically working flat out. I mean, I haven't had, I have not had a single day off yet since the beginning of the year. So I'm pretty exhausted. Like I've had half days here and there, but I've not had a full whole day off from work. Mm. And so I'm very, very conscious that it's something that I need to, to work on better. So I suppose for me, be well, being well would mean having a really, having a much better attitude towards looking after myself a bit better mm-hmm. um and you know that also means having a good attitude towards exercise having a good attitude towards food so that nothing is i don't take anything to an extreme you know like i love running but if the body's not playing ball then i won't run you know yeah if it, i love i do like generally eating really healthily and eating well but again if there are days when you know i i want to have couple of glasses of wine and I want to have a dessert and I want to eat a takeaway even if that's a couple of days in a row I will do you know Mm -hmm. like it's about having that overall balance I suppose and and the biggest thing about being well for me is being more forgiving towards myself so not beating myself up if things don't work out or not beating myself up if I you know if I feel like something hasn't gone as as I expected it to. No I think that's that's fantastic. It's about self-acceptance and self-awareness, isn't it? About mm. what's important for you and your needs. And I definitely with you on the work-life balance. I've definitely <laughs> not figured that out yet either. <laughs> I think when you work for yourself, it's so hard. It's really hard to explain to you. I've got a friend of mine and he's just set up his own um, his own business. And he he messaged me last night and, and said, I said, actually, I messaged him and said, how's it going? You know, how are you finding it? Because we've done a lot of chats about how to start things up and and, you know, he said, self-employment's really hard. Mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, it's 24-7 yeah. for the first few years. And then you can start to maybe go, okay, now I've built you know, my brand up enough. I can possibly take a little bit of time out. But yeah, yeah it is 24-7. And even now for me, you know, I have people that work for me now, but I still don't feel like I can switch off because I'm, you know, the, the level of care that I want to deliver mm across my brand the 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 you know I want best practice across my brand yeah. and so it means that I'm still kind of just I am still like I'm supervising everybody and checking everybody is okay and they know what they're doing and so you never really switch off because you're always thinking about what's next and, and what's coming and how can you improve something so yeah I think 
it can be difficult, definitely, without a doubt. Yeah, no, I'm the same. I'm the same, even, you know, in clinic, but outside clinic with the Be Well and and my team. And But I think that's good. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I think as long as you know it, as long as you recognise it, it's okay. I think, like, you know, all my friends are like, they all say to me, out of all our friends, you really are the one that works the hardest. And I was like, I don't think I do. I think it's just, I have my own business, which means it's different it's Mm. just different you know Mm. you just there's probably not as many um boundaries in terms of nine to five or you know monday to friday no exactly and then when you do additional stuff like you do with the be well collective and i do with train brave and Mm -hmm. i do with my instagram and and the podcast continuous learning (laughs) exactly you just there really isn't much time for much else really so yeah oh well I hope that you can have some time off after this podcast or tonight and have um yeah some you time I think that's what I'm going to prescribe you you (laughs) I wish I could say I was going to but I've actually got um I've got a session with a triathlon group this off this evening so uh, I'll be busy doing that but it's all fine it's all good good. I'm just pleased that you enjoy what you do and that's probably why we do why we work hard Exactly, exactly. Oh, Rennie, thank you so much for being on Live Well, Be Well. My absolute pleasure. It's been absolutely fun talking to you about all these wonderful things. And it's so great to get all this information out because I genuinely feel like eating disorders are so misunderstood. Mm-hmm. And the more the more information we can get out there and get people to understand this is complex, the better. So what a great platform to get it out on. It's Yeah, it's really, really good. So thank you for asking me. Thank you, Rennie. It was absolute pleasure. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed listening today, please do subscribe as you'll love next week's episode. And if you did enjoy it, please do leave a five-star rating because it helps spread the awareness of the podcast, the information that's given, but it also shows me that you're enjoying it too, which is the most important. But lastly, if you haven't yet signed up to The Great British Veg Out, I've created a free 30-day challenge ebook with 30 recipes, nutritional information, shopping lists. You've got the whole shebang in there, guys. And it can help really improve your health, getting you in the kitchen and looking at food in a different way. So you can sign up for free via my website or you can check out my Instagram or the Be Well Collective Instagram. But until next week, I hope you all live well, and be well. Before you go, I have something new to tell you about. There's brand new bonus content waiting for you with every new guest I speak to. These are exclusively for my inner circle of Apple subscribers. To listen now, head to the Live Well, Be Well show page on Apple Podcasts, where you can activate your free trial and you can enjoy the podcast without adverts.